Welcome to the second service on this beautiful October day in Huntington Beach, California. If you're joining us online, it's awesome here in Huntington Beach. If you don't live here, you should totally move here. Am I right, folks? <laughs> Nobody ever says move here. I, I'm, I'm reversing the trend. Everybody's moving to Tennessee and Texas. Have you been to Tennessee, folks? Go in the summer before you make a permanent decision. Uh, it's wonderful here, and I am delighted to open the Bible with you. If you have your Bible with you, please open it. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there will be one near you. In the seats all around you, you'll find a Bible there, and this is a… I'm taking you through a Bible narrative, giving you a historical remembrance of something that happened in the first Christian church, and it'll mean a lot more to you you'll be able to follow the action if you have a Bible open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, our invitation always is to take it home with you. The Bible you found, that's yours. Put your name in it, bring it with you on Sunday, read it during the week. If you'd like, by the way, to join me in my current reading plan, I'm just reading among other things, but my, my minimum commitment is to read two chapters in the Gospel of Mark and the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So today is October 15th. I'm going to read two chapters of the Gospel of Mark and Proverbs chapter 15. If you'd like to read what I'm reading, if you don't have a plan, I'm going to talk to you in a moment about building your day around Jesus. If you don't know what to read when you meet with Him in prayer, start there. Read the Gospel of Mark, the first two chapters tomorrow. Fair enough? Now, let me give you an invitation. We were scheduled to baptize four people this morning, but our baptismal heater decided not to cooperate, and it just completely, well, it's no longer with us. Uh, services are pending, uh, but the, the machine that makes that water uh, enjoyably warm uh, is no longer among the land of the living, so we're going to reschedule baptism. And that was a little annoying, and that was a little frustrating, but I'm going to take that as a providential opportunity for some of you who have not been baptized to join us in the waters of baptism as soon as that thing is fixed. We're going to work on it starting tomorrow morning, but if you've been putting it off, or maybe even more importantly, if you're not even sure why anybody would be baptized, I'd love to spend time with you. We can talk, we can text, we can meet in person, whatever works for you. I'd love to explain to you why we baptize people and why that is important. Take this as your opportunity, take it as, an, as a chance for you to investigate further. If you are a Christian and you are quite certain that Christ has saved you and you've been following Him, but for whatever reason, and people have a lot of reasons, you've put off baptism, take the card that's in your seat back pockets. Fill, out, fill that out, let me know to get in touch, and we will talk this week. If you're here in our church for the first time, or the first time in a long time, and you're here and you didn't particularly want to be here, but it was embarrassing to say no to the person who invited you, and you're just here, welcome. So glad that you are. Here's the purpose and the point of today's sermon, as all sermons in this church. I just want to tell you about Jesus, and today I want to share with you a very thin slice of church history when the ancient church found itself in the very beginning days of its life under immense pressure. Its leadership was threatened and threatened to the point of death. 
ordinary people who had gathered to worship Jesus and to pray to Him remembered when their conscious memory from not that long ago, Jesus had been publicly murdered on a cross. And now the same machinery that threatened and killed Him has turned against them. And the question is, what are they going to do about it? See, we're in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts was written by Luke. There are four Gospels in your Bible that tell you the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke, alone among the Gospel writers, wrote a second volume to his Gospel. After he finished telling through careful historical investigation his readers all about the life of Jesus, he continued with the life of the apostles, the first Christians. And if you read both the Gospel of Luke and particularly the book of Acts, you're going to discover that the people who are mentioned there are very ordinary men and women. Peter in particular, who features very heavily in this story, is just a normal person. I relate to him much more than I do to any other Bible character because I think I share a little bit of his temperament. Paul, once he meets Jesus, it's a straight line up. Peter, he's kind of like the stock market in tough times, wild swings. He's up, he's down, he's indecisive, he's actually denying Christ, he's making bold promises of service to Christ. How Peter acts depends on where you open your Bible. He's just a very up-and-down kind of person, sincere, wholehearted, but often afraid, sometimes angry, a very relatable person. And that matters to me to open the Bible with you this morning and tell you his story in particular because I think we would all agree that in this season of life that we're living in in the United States as Christians, these aren't the most comfortable and agreeable and easily enjoyable days. Would you agree with that? It's a tough time for the local congregation. And I told the people in the first service for the last several years now, by God's grace, I actually feel like our church is a little island of health and blessing and safety while I see all kinds of crazy storms raging around us that only occasionally wash up a little bit onto our shores. Life here has been really good, really blessed for a good number of years, but if we step back and look at the national picture… Probably for most of us in our lifetimes, these days feel more uncertain. We can take less for granted than we ever have. The starting points and the assumptions don't seem to be what we remember just 10 or 20 years ago. And we have to decide how we're going to respond to that. The conviction and the purpose for this story being in Luke's writing in the book of Acts is he wanted to show you what ordinary people did in response to the pressure that came against their own lives. Open your Bibles with me, Acts chapter 4, and let me tell you where exactly we are. You'll notice we're early in the book. Jesus has given after His resurrection the commission to the apostles to go tell everybody what they have seen. What have they seen? They've witnessed His death, and against their own beliefs and expectations, they saw Jesus back from the dead. You need to take it seriously how surprised the disciples actually were that Jesus did exactly what He promised and rose from the dead. 
That was the promise of Scripture. They heard him preach many times in the Old Testament, what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, to refer to himself and explain that what was written 400, 700, 1,000 years before his own time was actually written about him. But the apostles had the same belief that you and I do. If somebody dies, they stay dead. If you attend a funeral, you don't expect to have coffee with them a few days later. The disciples were genuinely surprised to the point of being afraid when they actually understood and saw with their own eyes that Jesus did exactly what He promised and exactly what the Bible prophesied and rose from the dead. And it made all the difference in the world. In the book of Acts, empowered by the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised to them and had sent to them, you meet in the book of Acts men who act substantially different from the way they acted back in the Gospel of Luke. Peter and John, in fact, preach. They were going to prayer in Acts chapter 3. There they met a man who had been crippled and placed pathetically, sadly, by his family at the entrance to the temple to beg. For four decades, this man has been brought there by friends or family and posted up as an object, an object of pity, an object of compassion by passerby, and he has spent his entire adult life begging. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going to an appointed Jewish time of prayer. Peter looks down at him and says something really simple, I don't have any money but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he did. He went bounding, leaping, shouting, screaming, singing into the temple. A large crowd gathered. And Peter, continuing to follow the leading of God, preached a sermon. A large crowd gathered and heard Peter preach things like this. Look in Acts chapter 3. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has, this, has made this name man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. That's a bold sermon. I don't know if you picked it up. Sometimes the Bible languages helps, uh, kind of obscures the simplicity of what Peter is saying. What Peter just told the crowd is, God sent his son and you killed him. But God wasn't done. God raised him from the dead. And that's why this man, as a miraculous proof, that's why this crippled man walks among you. Well, needless to say, a large crowd gathered, a large crowd group of people heard this, and in Acts chapter 4, we pick up our story, and it tells us how ordinary people became so bold to share the good news about Jesus. Read with me Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about, how many? 5,000. 5, That's a pretty good day. 
You can go to church a long time without seeing 5,000 men believe in Jesus all at once. That's not counting the women. It's entirely possible that 10 or 12,000 people, if there were children there, not numbered among the adults, 10, 12,000 people simultaneously believed in Jesus. This creates a problem for the authorities. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Notice the language here. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? The Bible doesn't, Bible stories are always very lean and sparse with details, but when it says they set them in the midst, what that is almost certainly conveying to them is that they have assembled as a religious council known as the Sanhedrin. They are setting up in an amphitheater-style seating around them. They've put them in the middle, in the lowest spot of the room. And if you work through all the names and the titles there, what they tell you is that everybody who is religiously important and is a leader of any importance to the nation of Israel has all assembled to literally sit above them in judgment and ask them one question. Verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? And it's easy to read on the page, but what you need to hear is that there is death in the question. This is the same machinery that killed Jesus a short time earlier. They've brought them all in. They have been named. They have assembled. They have gathered. They have sat in their literally high seats in judgment against these two ordinary men to essentially say this, say the name of Jesus one more time. I dare you. You know who we are. You know what we do. You remember what we did. Go ahead and say his name again. See what happens to you. Then Peter, remember Peter? He's the one who denies Jesus. He's the one that has the boldness to walk on water, but in the midst of walking on water, looks at the storm, gets afraid, and what happens to him? He sinks. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, in other words, controlled by God, directed by God. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What do you think of his answer? Asked and answered very, very clear. Then he quotes Scripture, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. There's an Old Testament reference there that they would have easily picked up, but what he's saying is, you men were in charge of the faith of Israel. 
You were the master builders. You should have known better. God sent His own Son. You rejected Him, and guess what? The one that God sent is actually the whole point. He's the cornerstone. He is the very foundation of our faith. Verse 12, very important verse. Listen to it. You may never have heard it. If you're in church for the first time, this hardly a verse that, I, that could be more easily and clearly stated that would help you and save your life if you'll believe Jesus. Listen to Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must, what's it say there? Be saved. What is the key to boldness? What makes ordinary people like us? Because that's what we've been talking about these weeks. How do normal, ordinary people such as us serve God's purposes? Well, we've all been entrusted with the good news. If you're a Christian, you know the good news that I just read to you is true. You know that there is absolutely no one like Jesus, that He was promised in Scripture. He fulfilled to minute detail everything that was written about Him. He lived a sinless life in the presence of people who scrutinized his every action and questioned every one of his motives. He went to the cross not as a grudging victim who was dragged to a place to be murdered. He went there willingly. He went to meet his executioners because there he was paying not for his own sins because he had known he was paying for mine and he was paying for yours. The apostles have finally put it all together. Everything Jesus taught them, everything they had seen in the Scriptures, and the guidance of God Himself and the person of the Holy Spirit has brought it all together for Peter. And a man who once denied Jesus is now as bold as a lion saying to the same religious machinery that killed Jesus, you killed Him, but God raised Him from the dead. And we saw it. And you're going to see, he's going to tell them, and we won't shut up about it because we know what we saw and we know what we heard. How do ordinary people such as Peter and John become bold to share the good news? First, and perhaps the most important thing, we must be convinced to the point of action that only Jesus saves. Every Christian believes that Jesus saves. Every Christian who has read the plain teaching of Jesus also believes that only Jesus saves. That sounds narrow and bigoted and hateful in 21st century America, but our faith is exactly as narrow as Jesus Himself. Jesus made it clear in John 14, verse 6, shortly before being arrested and crucified, Jesus said this to these close disciples. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know the rest of it? No one comes to the Father except through me. That's His teaching. That's His standard. That's His personal conviction that He and He alone could bring people to God. How dare He? The resurrection. That makes all the difference. If Jesus is merely another great teacher, we can put Him in the pantheon of great talkers. But Jesus doesn't deserve to be welcomed as a good teacher if he didn't rise from the dead. Jesus promised and staked his own teaching on his ability to do what only God could do, rise from the dead, and he did. 
That is so fundamentally important that the Apostle Paul, who once persecuted the Christian church until he met Jesus, risen from the dead, said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're liars, you're still in your sins, and we're the most pathetic people in the world. You can read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me make that really come home to us in this room. If Jesus isn't alive, this is the saddest waste of time anyone is enjoying anywhere. What are you doing here? Singing songs to somebody who died who can't hear them? Speaking in prayer to someone who's not there to listen? Staking your present life and your future, so-called eternity, on something that somebody made up on a colossal mistake? Those are the stakes. It's either Jesus died and rose as promised and predicted as he himself said, or he didn't. The apostles The men who knew him and saw him had their whole life transformed when they met him back from the dead. You may remember that Thomas famously said, I won't buy it. I don't buy it and I won't until I can what? I'll go hands on. I'm going to need to see the wounds. I'm going to need to touch the scars. So Jesus showed up and said, heard you wanted to see me. I'm only very slightly paraphrasing. If you read that encounter, it's very tender. It's very patient. You said you wanted to see me. You said you wanted to examine. Come on over. Thomas said he worshiped. And he said, my Lord and my God. It changed everything. What made the difference? They were convinced that only Jesus can save. And listen, here's the challenge for us. They were convinced not as a matter of doctrinal belief. They were convinced to the point of action, of actually sharing the good news that only Jesus could save them. It will do no one any good except you if you believe the good news alone. If you don't share it with somebody else, the good news that Jesus actually conquered death, if that only stops with you, that can and will save your life, but if it goes no further, it will bless no one else. We call this good news, and may I suggest to you that Christians are only Christians because we have heard and believed and received the good news of Jesus The way some Christians act in this current environment, you would never believe that we've heard good news in our whole lives. A lot of Christians under pressure are not spending their time sharing the good news, they're spending their time complaining. If you want to know who that is, just check your Facebook feed later today. (laughs) There you will find people who say two things at once, Jesus is Lord and everything is awful. Now, I'm not minimizing the, present, the difficulties of the present day we're living in. In our lifetime, it may be, for most of us, in our short sliver of our little lives, these may be the most uncertain and difficult days that we've ever lived through. But folks, we have good news to share. And if you spend all your time complaining, people are not very likely to believe that you have any good news to tell them. They can't handle constant negativity and depression and anger and fear and scandal-mongering and then say, okay, disregard everything I said Monday through Saturday. Let me tell you the good news. It should show up in our lives first. What you see in the first church recorded in the book of Acts is people who are 
irrepressibly grateful and joyful to Jesus. And even though they suffer greatly, they just keep moving forward because they have good news to tell. And so do you and I. But we must be convinced that that good news that Jesus saves, we must be convinced of that to the point of action, of actually sharing it. How will you share the good news? That will depend a lot on your temperament and your circumstances. Not everybody's a street preacher. But if you have truly met the one who saved you from your sins and assured you a home in heaven and has promised to go with you through this life and love you and bless you and keep you safe spiritually until you get safely home to him, you have good news to celebrate and to tell every single day. And I'm spending most of my time on this first point of the sermon, but it's vitally important because many Christians who actually believe the gospel It doesn't move beyond their belief into their behavior on a day-to-day basis. Many of us act as universalists. What's a universalist? Everything works. A universalist, and it's a very popular position, basically has this concept, and here's how it's often explained. God is at the top of a mountain, and there are many roads to reach Him. And you can't even see all of the roads from the road that you're on. And some are longer and take more turns than others. But if you'll just get on the road and follow your road, you'll eventually reach God. Jesus knew nothing of that. Hear him again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How could he have the audacity to say that? Because he died for sin as promised, and then he rose from the grave to prove that it was all true. Only the resurrection makes the difference. The announcement of the gospel is not that you're on one of several roads to reach down to God. No, the announcement of the gospel is way better than that. It announces that God came down the mountain to you, humbled himself, came down to your level, and he himself, at his own expense, will carry you back up to him. But this only makes us bold if it's more than a doctrinal checkpoint. To say, yes, I believe that. No, it only matters to others if we believe that to the point of action. Here's how Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher to ever preach in English, explained it. I will not believe that you have tasted the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. That's such a good word picture. If you discover something great to eat, don't you like to tell people? Not the people you don't like. (laughs) They can keep eating mediocre food. (laughs) Who do you tell? You tell the people you love. You tell the people you care about. Hey, where should we go? Oh, I found this place. Oh, we got to go. And you'll drag them all the way to Tustin if it's good enough just to enjoy the good news you found. Why the eagerness about so many things and so little eagerness about the one who matters most? That's what Spurgeon's talking about. Keep reading with me, Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's huge. Here's the cultural background. Peter and John either never started or early washed out in their rabbinical careers. 
The aspiration for any observant Jewish family in the first century is we hope our boy develops enough that he can teach others the Scriptures. For Peter and John growing up as commonplace men whose accent marked them as men from the back regions of no particular importance, they were fishermen. They were literally the blue-collar industrial workers plying the Sea of Galilee to feed the rest of the nation. And the rest of the nation should have been grateful, but as countries normally do with the ordinary people who feed them, they don't care. We live on the West Coast. I don't know if you know this. Some of our so-called elites call the rest of the country flyover country. Because the only places that matter if you're a certain kind of snob in the United States is the West Coast and certain parts of the East Coast. Everybody else in the middle, all they're good for is flying over on your way to somewhere that matters. That's the, that's the concept that people have of Peter and John. Acts 4.13 tells you so. They saw that they were uneducated common men, but they also noticed that they were bold. What made the difference? The last sentence, they recognized that they what? Had been with Jesus. Number two, we must spend so much time with Jesus that it is obvious to the world. That's the key difference. Do ordinary Christians spend so much time with Jesus that it shows up in the kind of people they are? Do you spend so much time with Him that it changes you? Some wise pundit on the internet where we find all wisdom said that you're the average of the six people you spend the most time with. And I just wonder if anything like that is true, if you're becoming like the people you're most with, who are you turning into? Is it a podcast guy? Is it an entertainer? Is it an author? Is it a persuasive talker? Is it a content creator? Who's shaping you the most? Peter and John, the Scripture actually points it out with no criticism. It says what kind of people they were. They were uneducated and common. There was nothing to recommend them. If they lived in California, we, were just, we would say they were just two dudes. Just two ordinary people. But as soon as they heard them speak, and especially when they saw how bold they were in their speech, they recognized something very important. The last sentence, that they had been with Jesus. So my question to you is this, and this is really simple and really practical. And my invitation to you is to answer the question and to change your week accordingly. Here it is. Does your day include time with Jesus? Or is your day built around with Jesus, because there's a big difference. Include time with Jesus is He's just one of the very many people you're going to talk to during the day. And that's a better start, certainly. And if you're doing that, keep at least doing that rather than running off to do whatever you want and checking in with Him when you can't help it or you really, really need to talk to Him. My invitation to you is to build your day around Him. What does that look like? Let me be really simple and practical. I've given you this advice before. Somebody who helped me greatly with this said, put the Lord in your day early or first. Early means early. No mystery there. Very first thing when you get up, you pay attention to Him. You open your Bible, 
You spend time in prayer with him early. He's the, literally the very first person you talk to. My friend said, make it first if early doesn't work, because some of us can't pay attention early. We'll show up but have no remembrance of what the Lord might have said or what we might have said in return. He said, for people like that, and there might be some people here because we do have an 8 a.m. service, and yet here you are at 9.30. I'm guessing maybe early isn't your very favorite thing. If it can't be early, make it first. The first time in your day when you can really pay attention, maybe for you that's shortly after breakfast. Maybe it's actually at your office and you have enough liberty and flexibility in your schedule that before you actually start your job, you can sit at your desk with an open Bible, with your coffee, and pay attention to the Lord. Whatever it is, build your day around Him. If you don't know where to start, here's my current reading plan. Right now, at a minimum, I'm reading three chapters a day. I'm reading two chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm reading the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. That means that tomorrow I'm going to read Mark 10 and 11, and I'm also going to read Proverbs chapter 15. Just two chapters in the Gospel of Mark and also the chapter of Proverbs. If you already have a plan, keep doing what you're doing. There's an infinite number of good ways to read the Bible. Just start and build your day around Him. Because what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 4 is that finally, after all these years of teaching and listening and asking him questions, and in the case of Peter, often doubting him, in the case of John, if you've read your Gospels carefully, John and his brother once asked Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from God and kill those people over there? I mean, these were just ordinary people with broken priorities, with fearful hearts, with minds that flipped back and forth between following and believing or not, what made the difference? They spent so much time with Him that they became like Him. They spent so much time with Him that they became bold to talk about Him. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here's the dilemma. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Are you seeing the depth of the depravity in these people's hearts? Hey, the crippled guy stood right next to them the whole time they were preaching. We can't deny what happened. Rather than believe what had happened, what's their decision? We can't deny it, so we'll just tell them to do what? Shut up. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Here's boldness. Ready? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. I love the quiet shade of that little verse. You'll have to tell us whether we should obey God or you. Here's our decision, just so you don't wonder. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Ours is an eyewitness faith. 
it really took place. It happened in public. It wasn't private revelation. It was the public act of God acting in human history, and we won't be quiet about it. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. I love this because the people they're returning to is the local church. I haven't taken time to show you the development of all that, but Peter and John are returning to the first Christian congregation. And notice what it says. They went to their, what's it say there? Friends. Okay? This is not a religious machine. This is a group of brothers and sisters in Christ, all of whom's lives have been transformed because they all know the same thing about Jesus. And when the congregation heard it, they prayed When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here they're quoting Psalm 2 written a thousand years earlier. David wrote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, for truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What's happening here? Peter and John have been immensely, dangerously bold on their own. Now they're returning to the local church and telling them what happened. And what we discovered there is the third key to Christian boldness in these difficult days. Number three, we must be a congregation with an unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God. Look at the way they prayed. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Remember, God is loving enough to call Himself your Father and even your friend, but before He became your Father and your friend, He is eternally the Creator. He's in charge of everything. That word Sovereign Lord is very rare in the New Testament. It only occurs a few times, and the reason they chose it is because it describes by someone whose authority is complete and unrivaled. He's in charge of everything, and may I suggest to you, church, if God really is in charge of everything, we can stop being afraid and we can stop complaining and simply do what He told us to do. Their confidence was in the sovereignty of God. Look in verse 27. They said that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel all gathered against Jesus. It's a historical fact. When Jesus was on trial, every nation was represented in his trial. Every nation was against him. And they say all of that, verse 28... The whole world conspired against you and against your son. Verse 28. 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You understand the magnitude of the verse I just read to you? What they said is, God, the entire world conspired against you. And all they did was serve the purpose that you had already determined. Jesus was not a victim. He died for your sins on purpose. He went to the cross not because Jewish and Roman authorities conspired to take him there, but because that was the purpose. He came to earth to give his life away for sinners like me and sinners like you. We will be a bold church that is pleasing to God and of service to other people if we have an unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God. And then they keep praying, verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and stop right there, if you will. What would you pray for? The machinery that has threatened Jesus and killed Jesus has now reassembled and told them, shut up. We dare you to say the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> you killed him. God raised him from the dead. Any other questions? No, no further questions. We understand your testimony. We just want you to be quiet about it. And remember, we're the ones that killed your teacher. What will they do? What would you pray for? Every week, practically every day, and certainly every Sunday morning, we pray for our, the protection of every gathering, every group that will meet on this campus. Paul the Apostle in his letters, if you read his letters carefully, you will see that Paul routinely prayed for the prayers of others that he would be given safety and protection and the boldness to keep preaching the gospel. What would you pray for? Listen to what they prayed for because they understood their time and their day. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? Boldness. They want us to shut up. God, give us the courage, give us the boldness that we won't. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, what's it say there? Boldness. So we must, number four, and finally, we must keep asking for God's empowerment to keep proclaiming the gospel. How do ordinary people serve the purpose of Jesus in difficult days? Number one, they become convinced that only Jesus can save people. Because they know him for themselves, they spend so much time with him that they become like him. Because they know him well, they're completely convinced in spite of threats and opposition that he's actually in charge. And because they know he's in charge, they say, God, just give us the grit, give us the courage to keep telling people who you are and what you did. Let me be really practical and I'm done. I'm saying this to myself as much as I am to you. This is both confessional and aspirational, if you will. We need to stop deciding who will say yes and no to the good news and just tell it. A lot of people in my life and yours probably have never heard the gospel from at least us because we've preemptively decided, I'm not going to say it, they don't want to hear it. Maybe they don't. What do you know? 
There's no telling what God has orchestrated in their lives that they're actually willing to hear it. And one of my professors did a study years ago, and I'm sure the number's high, higher now, that people back in the 90s when he made the study needed to hear the gospel at least half a dozen times before they believed it. So maybe you're just the second or the third or the fourth person who tells them the good news. Maybe they blow you off and tell you to get lost, and five years later, God orchestrates all the other people who will keep telling them the good news, and they see enough of Christ in the lives of all those people that it clicks for them the way it once clicked for you, and it all comes together, and Jesus saves them the same way He saved you. You're not in charge of results. We're not in charge of results. We're just people who tell people the good news. Let's stop deciding who wants to hear it. We already know everybody needs to hear it. So let's be wise, but let's also be bold, and let's ask God for His power to keep proclaiming the gospel. Let's make this practical before we go home. Who are three people in your life who need the gospel? We're going to pray in a moment, and some of you maybe need to trust Christ as your Savior, but for those of you who already know Him, Who in your life needs to hear the good news about Jesus? You can certainly put more than three names. I just chose three to help you widen your thinking a little bit. Who in your life, family, friend, coworker, neighbor, colleague at work, who do you know needs to hear the gospel? Put those three names down. And let's keep track of them as the rest of this year unfolds. And let's pray for them. And if you don't know Jesus yourself as your Savior this morning, this is my specific and personal invitation to you. I'm not in charge of anybody here. I can barely manage my own life under the care of Jesus. I'm just giving you a heartfelt invitation. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus has saved your life, He can and He will. Just trust Him. Turn away from your sins and put Him in charge, and He will do for you what He does for every person who sincerely and humbly asks for His forgiveness. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you His own life. He'll set your feet on a path following Him, and six months from now, you keep spending time with the one who saved you this morning, you'll barely recognize yourself. I know that's true because I talked to several people after the first service who I barely recognized because I met them several years ago before Jesus got a hold of them. The change is remarkable, and it can be yours if only you'll follow. Let's pray together. My invitation specifically and purposely is to you. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, can I invite you to ask Him to forgive your sin? Your conscience is telling you the truth. You've sinned and offended God. He's given you your conscience as a guide to tell you that you violated His standards, you've disobeyed His commandments. But if you'll turn to Him humbly and ask Him to save you and forgive you, you tell Him you can't save yourself, you want Him to do it for you, He will. That's why we call Him and sing to Him and read of Him in the Bible as Savior. He's not merely someone who comes alongside you. He's a rescuer. You put Him in charge. Turn yourself over to Him. He'll save you this morning. 
And you're three, friend. Would you pray for them now? Commit that this week you'll do what you can to share the good news with them. Lord, if, if we collectively as a church family will think of even three people, there will be thousands of people represented in our hearts and in our minds and thousands of names written this morning of people who need to hear the gospel. I pray that you'd make us bold to share it. And for those, Lord, here this morning who may be trusting you for the first time, I thank you for them. I pray that you would draw them by your own sweet and loving voice that they would know for certain that you have drawn them, that they would turn away from their sin, and that they would trust you and ask you humbly, like little kids, to save you, to save them. And I thank you that you will because you've promised to do so. You said, if anyone will come to me, I will never cast him out. I thank you for it, and I pray that you would give our church, this congregation, boldness to keep sharing the gospel. I pray it in Christ's name, and Crosspoint says, amen.